we are going to be continuing in the book of Acts. Actually, this will probably be the, the last message in Acts until, uh, until the new year. Uh, and uh, I'm really excited about uh, this particular text. It kind of it falls in line with Acts 242. Um, it's, another, it's another glimpse into how the early church uh, functioned together. Uh, and I think this is a beautiful picture of simplicity and of unity and singular vision and uh, a, a, focused, a, a focused message as well as just a radical generosity. Uh, and I think it's important for us to take this text in and see uh, just how powerful uh, the gospel was in the early church and how far uh, we have moved, I think, uh, sadly, uh, from this apostolic vision. Uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. And really, we're just going to be considering three realities of the early church and the th- three realities that we need as a church today, which is a singular vision, a central motivation, and a radical generosity. Uh, and these three realities um, are going to come into focus as we look at this text. Um, I, I think it's important before uh, we begin to remember the verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, when it says, so, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I think that it is so easy to forget uh, in this individualistic age in which we live that our salvation is not a private faith. Uh, that we aren't born into a vacuum, but that we are born again into a family. That to have the image of God restored in our lives is essentially to, to have the ability to relate in three directions restored. The ability to relate once again to God, uh, to relate to others appropriately, and only then can we have a right relationship with ourselves. And I think that this is the key to understanding even this text, that our witness to the life of Christ is defined by our concern for others. I think that that is important. Let me repeat that. Our witness to the life of Christ is defined by our concern for others. We are called to think little of ourselves and much of everyone else. We are individually members of one another, and that means we are not losing our identities, but we are contributing to the good of others as we become identified with Jesus. As our identification is wrapped up in the person of Christ, we actually discover who we're meant to be. And what we discover is that our life of Christ is defined by our love and care for others. Uh, And I think that the church is failing when we don't recognize that the gospel is meant to transform how we interact with other people, that we are to view the world through the lens of Christ's eyes, through his vision, that we're to see one another with the eyes of Jesus of what people are capable of being in Christ and then loving them toward that reality. The sacredness of human life should be always before the Christian mind. It is to be marked by a genuine concern for others, for we see in others, though marred, the image of God as well as the full possibility of that image being restored. And I think that that is super important. But what's the problem? Uh, what, What is caused us to get off track in regards to this kind of vision for the church. And I think that we need to carefully consider how dehumanized we have become in a culture that is obsessed with celebrity far more than philanthropy. I think that we need to understand that we are a part of a culture 
that advances self at the expense of others. And it plays itself out even in church life, even in the Christian life. Often our pursuits uh, um, in faith are even self-motivated rather than other-oriented. And I think that this is deeply problematic. But we need to remember that this is the very word that comes to us in the scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, but know this, in the last days will be perilous times, for men will be what? Lovers of themselves. And I think that we have found ourselves uh, in those times uh, in, in a way that is, um, is extraordinarily disturbing. Uh, our news is filled with it, our entertainment is pushing it. There is an agenda, uh, the, the agenda of self as the true God uh, that is being played out in every facet of our culture. Our lives have been built around aphorisms like express yourself or just be yourself. And what has happened is that the culture of self-reference, we as Christians have reconstructed our faith to harmonize with this false way of thinking. And I think it's deeply problematic. So how do we correct uh, these issues that often plague even church life. And I think that we start with the scripture. What does scripture say we should be like? And then we come before God and we repent of where we're not aligned with his vision. Uh, And we make the correction because we have been given the Holy Spirit to live differently. And I think that it's important. It's again and again, Acts is about the spirit-filled life, the spirit-filled community, the gospel to be proclaimed with power and authority Uh, requires we as a community to be spirit-filled, which is a total reliance upon God to fulfill his mission through us as we depend upon him moment by moment. And so what I want us to look at in this text is is what is the correct way that we ought to be living together uh, as a community of faith? How will we as a church actually fulfill the vision that God has given us in this city of Portland? How do we see the gospel go forth with power and authority? And I love this. It begins in verse 32, and here you have the singular vision, one heart and one soul. Now, the full number of those who believed, you know, we're we're dealing with over 5,000 people at this point in the early church. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Here we see the full expression of koinonia, a community that had a singular vision. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones once said. He said, what Christianity does, true Christianity that is, does is it gets rid of the complications and produces an essential simplicity. And I think that that's such a beautiful statement. And one of our pillars uh, is the pillar of simplicity. And when we say simplicity, it isn't so much defined by, um, by doing less, uh, but it's more defined by a philosophy that desires to keep the main thing the main thing. It's eradicating the complications so that the person of Jesus can come into absolute clarity. The power of the early church is that they knew who it was that they had given their lives to. They had experienced his actual presence in their lives by his spirit. It transformed the way that they lived in that first century. And, and what you had was a unified, a unified front when it came to the church's proclamation as well as the church's deeds in the society in which it was placed. Everything they did pointed to Christ. 
They stripped away the unnecessary and they became a people that were defined by the essential. And I think that this is the place where peace is. I think that we actually have, have uh, replaced simplicity with duplicity. Duplicity uh, can be defined as either deceitfulness or, or kind of double vision, if you will, divided, a divided heart. And, and that's the question today for you and for me. And I, and I find myself deeply troubled when I consider how quickly I can become duplicitous in the way that I live, how quickly uh, culture gets its claws into my own way of thinking, and, and then there is this, this divide between the sacred and secular uh, in which I have the Christian life that I'm trying to live and then the culture that I'm trying to keep up with. And what that does is it creates a duplicitousness uh, and it compromises our testimony and our witness. And we have to constantly be aware of this. This is why what we think actually matters. I love this. It says that they were of one heart and one soul. They had, ta- they had learned as a community to take every thought captive into the obedience of Christ. They saw that their life was happiest and most fulfilled when they weren't self-serving, but when they gave themselves fully to Jesus by pouring themselves out for one another. And that reality, that simplicity, created this powerful testimony that was so attractive. It was so otherworldly, because that is not how our world lives. Our world is marked by an utter restlessness. And I think that we need to understand that. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11 says that God has placed eternity in the heart of man, which means that there is a restlessness until, as Augustine said, I find my rest in thee, O Lord. And as Christians, we should have that center. We're told that there is a perpetual rest that is available to us because of who Jesus is. And that single vision, that being of one heart and one soul, is when we begin to recognize that our contentment is not going to be found in the newest model of iPhone or the newest app that supposedly creates some sort of fake connection with a community that isn't really your friends. It's, it's that, that, that singularity that helps us to find our anchor uh, in the foundation, uh, which is the only foundation by which life actually finds restfulness, which is Jesus himself. He is the anchor of the soul. And what we find is that we often anchor ourselves into things that ebb and flow, that are changing with culture and tide and the time, and the, and the time that we live in. And it, it does not bring satisfaction, but it brings I think, an ever-increasing level of hopelessness. And I, I, I find uh, it so heartbreaking when I meet Christians who are plagued with the restlessness that is defined by an over-concern with self and the world in which they live, rather than actually recognizing that Jesus is, should be their center by which they enter into the world. And instead of being hopelessness, the world becomes a place of adventure where the gospel can be worked through us for the good of others around us. When we see that the gospel is worth dying for, and I think that that's the thing, is that we have to learn that the way to life is actually through the good death, as George MacDonald called it. Matthew 11, 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look at this vision here. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. I think that this is so essential to the health and the future of Door of Hope. 
is that we need to be a church that simplify our desires to a singular desire by which all other desires take their appropriate place. The Christian life is not about the eradication of pleasure. It's not about the eradication of the, of the, the delights of life, but it's about, this, it's about reorganizing our, our lives around the central desire of Jesus being glorified in all that we do so that the other pleasures of existence can actually take their proper place. It's never wrong to love your children, but it's always wrong to love them more than you love Jesus. It's not wrong to own a house or to desire a car or to go to a movie or to listen to music and to to participate in what it means to be human. But it is wrong when those things begin to trump our devotion to Christ. And I think that what we need to see is that the church that is powerful in its witness is a church that has its life properly ordered. Disordered loves ruins Christian witness. And we need to understand that. It's not about the eradication. Let me just say that again. It's not about the eradication of pleasure, but it's the proper ordering of things so that our existence finds rest, that we have a center, that we have equilibrium. This is the hope, and this is what it means to have a singular vision. This is what it means to live in light of the simplicity of the gospel. What Christianity does is gets rid of the complications and produces an essential simplicity. I love that, that statement. But look at verse 33. Because verse 33 is, is fascinating because this gives us the central motivation. If the singular vision is that we be of one heart, one soul, our lives built around the person of Jesus, and that's being played out not only in what we say but how we live, that, that we need to understand that there needs to be a central motivation. There is a reason why God keeps you on this earth, this fallen place, uh, after you have become born again. Uh, if, if the purpose of salvation is to get you out of hell, to get you into heaven, then, then you're, missing, you're missing the right understanding of the gospel. God did not get you out of hell to get you into heaven. What he did is he came to bring heaven into your life that you might be a witness to him. And this is exactly what it says here. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. I, I love, remember what Paul says about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You remember the power of the gospel preached. The resurrection insinuates the death. There's no, there's no distortion here. To preach the resurrection means that you are also preaching the cross. That we preach Christ crucified means that we also preach his resurrection because death could not hold him, but that death was the final enemy. Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ's resurrection is a guarantee that his work on the cross actually accomplished something for human existence. The forgiveness of sins, the overcoming of the, of the dominions of darkness, and the, this world order was accomplished upon in the, in the counterintuitive work of the cross of Calvary. But the cross of Calvary, if it ended there then we are the most pathetic of people. But the, the proclamation of the early church is that we saw Jesus risen from the dead. It's what caused the gospel to explode through the known world. That they weren't just talking about a teacher who lived well and taught well, but they were talking about that the teacher is himself the message and the message is alive because Jesus is the living word. And what you are witnessing here today, remember what Peter said? is the power 
of Christ's presence by his Holy Spirit being communicated through us. And I love this. The central motivation for them is that they saw that how they cared for one another, how they lived within their society, um, what they communicated, it all had a central motivation to bring glory to Jesus by the proclamation of his gospel. That they weren't about all these peripheral issues, but they kept a central center. The gospel was the point in which they, from which they worked each and every day. And because of that simplicity, not only in life, but also in message, there was incredible conversion. I mean, the conversion rate was insane. God's presence was made manifest through the way that these people lived together and through what, and which gave then power and authority to what they communicated. Because I think that's one of the great disconnects in the church today is the message that is preached is not often the message that is lived. But we need to understand for the Jewish mind in the first century to live a truth and to know a truth and to speak a truth are all the same thing. There is no separation from those realities. You do not know a truth if you do not live it and love it. That is a proper understanding of proclamation of truth. The proclamation of truth has to be aligned with a life being well lived. Their single vision and how they lived as a community is actually what gave uh, power to the witness of the apostles. And I think that this is a, a wonderful statement in which it says, I love this, great power and great grace. Great power uh, means that their lives were lived in such a way that what they communicated, the more fully we live something, and, and the more the gospel becomes an experiential reality for our existence, the more authority there is in what we say. There is no authority in the preaching of the gospel if you don't actually believe what you're saying. I always say it's not our responsibility to make people believe in Jesus, but it is our responsibility to make people believe that we believe what we're telling them about Jesus. Nothing is more pathetic than the gospel presentation from the lips of one that doesn't actually believe what they're declaring. It actually falls incredibly flat. Authority comes from conviction, and conviction is compelling. When you speak with passion, about what Jesus has done for you because you have experienced his presence in your life. You know that you have been saved from death and been brought into newness of life. You have experienced that central rest that comes from having Jesus as a foundation. Authority is a part, that's what gives us authority in what we're proclaiming. Now, here's the powerful thing about the gospel is that the gospel can be proclaimed by, with authority even from, the, from those who are utilizing the gospel for, for, the, wrong, for the wrong purposes. That are actually, God will even use false prophets uh, when it comes to the preaching of Jesus, because wherever the name of Jesus is lifted up, there's power in that name. And so, but I think that there's even more authority and more power when the life lines up with the message. And I've seen plenty of people preach the message with great authority and have great success in what they proclaimed, but when it came out that their life was actually duplicitous rather than singular, it did great damage to their testimony. And I, I've seen that firsthand. I've worked, I've worked for one that that happened to, and it was devastating because to see a man that was gifted with the ability to proclaim the gospel so fully, but then to know that he was living a life that did not line up, it blew the whole church up. And I think that we can't, we can't think, we need to remember that, that our sin will find us out. 
And this is why it is important that our lives align with our witness. And honestly, when our lives are out of whack, our witness seems to dissipate anyway. And I found that even in, in my friend who I worked for, that the gospel became less and less prominent in his preaching and more prescriptive ways of living well, because I think that, that the gospel produced guilt in him because his life was not aligned with what it is that he was preaching. So the best he could do is give you seven steps to a better marriage, six steps to a better, a better work life, how to find your best you now. Um, and I don't even believe that a best me exists. So I'm, I think just keep on being dependent upon Jesus is probably the best thing. But great power leads to authority, which actually creates a compelling witness. Um, and I love this great grace. That word grace um, was upon them. I think that this, uh, there's a, what this could potentially mean, what Luke is actually getting at, um, it, could, it could speak of that because in the context of this passage, the church was just marked by this radical generosity, which we're going to consider in just a second, that that radical generosity um, actually made the witness that they were bringing forth, the words that they were speaking, even more valid and even more compelling. But I also would say that that great grace, God's unmerited favor upon them made the message compelling as well. And favor, notice this, grace leads to faith. And I think that we need to understand that when we reflect the grace of God, it has the ability, the Spirit utilizes us then to produce faith in others. And I think that this is important for us to understand. How does God's, is God the one who saves? God alone who saves? Yes, it is true. But how shall they hear if there's no preacher to preach? What we need to understand is that, yes, Jesus saves alone, by faith alone, through grace. But he does that through the vehicle of you and I, through the church. We are the conduits by which the gospel is proclaimed. And I think that this central motivation led to a focus in the church where it knew what it was about. It knew what its, what its vision was, and it was fulfilling it beautifully because it was, it was a community that was built around Jesus as their center. And they never lost sight of that. That simplicity led to a compelling witness that, create, that caused the gospel to explode through the known world at the time. Look at verses 34 through 37. Because if they had a singular vision and a central motivation, it was played out in a radical generosity. It says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And then they give, uh, Luke gives a very specific example of this. He says, Thus Joseph who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I want to remind you guys, in the early church, the way that generosity was played out, the way that the offering came in, first of all, you notice um, something that we often miss when we talk about generosity. I, when I was a boy and would go to church, they would they would call it the, they wouldn't call it the offering, they would call it the what? The tithe. But what does a tithe mean? It means 10%. So the whole idea is that I, I own 90, God owns 10. 
when in reality, God owns 100% and you get a steward 90. Uh, but that's not even actually correct uh, from a New Testament standard. A tithe is actually never declared in the New Testament. In fact, what is declared uh, is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. It says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. Notice, they were, great grace was upon them. When God's grace gets a hold of our lives, it makes us want to give our lives away for his cause, for his, for his purposes, for his people. Grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So the tithe is not something that we see in, New Te- in the New Testament, but what we do see is radical generosity. Uh, now, there's been great debates over whether the church in Jerusalem gave too much. Uh, and, and when you read this text, it's easy to, to read it. Um, as a, uh, and I've seen people, and this is the danger of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book of, of, it's, it's a book of history, a very small piece of history, really the first 30 years of the church's life. And, and it is not meant to be prescriptive. We can, great, we can draw great lessons out of it, but it is just Luke is simply recording what happened. And often he doesn't say, it doesn't say that God told them to give uh, everything that they had away. Uh, what, he just reflected what the church did. And what we see here, it's not a principle that is, that is to be applied, that you, everyone in this church, you're not really a Christian, and I've heard people preach this, unless you actually live in, uh, in poverty, that you have to actually put upon yourself uh, a spirit of poverty. Uh, this isn't a text that tells you that you need to go sell your house today uh, and lay the, the money at my feet. Please don't ever do that, because... Um, I don't know, I maybe would buy some new shoes or something. Uh, no, this is not what it's about. What it's about is about, is about a sp- what we look at in the text is the spirit that's at play, is that people saw that everything I am, everything I have, everything I say, I want it to honor Jesus. And they may have gone beyond even what Jesus was calling them to because they had been so radically saved, they had fallen so deeply in love with their Lord that they wanted every aspect of their life to reflect that. And I think that radical generosity needs to be a part of, this, of, of what we are as a church today. It's not about, hey, get, and, and here's the thing, guilt is not the way to produce generous hearts in the church. Although I, did, I do think I said a year ago when we were in a bad place uh, that if guilt will make it happen, then so be it. I hope you feel guilty. Uh, I, we're not in that place now. Uh, God has been really gracious uh, to us as a church this last year, but we still, I, I, I look at my own life, I'm like, Lord, I, I give to the church, I'm, I'm faithful in, my, in, my, in giving regularly, monthly, but am I giving in a way that it's painful, that it actually costs me something? And, and I think that Darcy and I are always wrestling with this, is what, how does our generosity, and not just play it out in what we put in the tithe box, but... How is our generosity being played out in the way that we live our lives? Are we generous when it comes to the time, how we spend our time, how we utilize our gifts, how we utilize our resources, how we care for our children, how we love our community? I think that generosity plays into every arena of life. 
But one of the best ways to know of how, about how generous we are, it begins with how we spend our money. I mean, what we do with our money tells us a lot about ourselves. And it actually goes back to the introduction that I brought forth, is that that singular vision is often destroyed by divided affections, divided heart. What makes the early church so powerful, they were fulfilling, actually, the Old Testament uh, the Old Testament scripture in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 15, verse 4, when it says, but there will be no poor among you. The new covenant was being played out. The needs of those uh, in the church were being met. Those who had much gave to those who had nothing. So the way that the early church took offerings uh, was that they would actually just, people would come forward in the gatherings. There's records of the early church. And the way they'd meet is that they would just, people would bring money forward at the end of the gathering. And then those who had needs in the church would come forward and they would be given what they needed. That's how it was met. Now, it, it sounds communal. Um, and this isn't, a, uh, this isn't about us living um, as a community because we all know that as my hair grows out and my beard grows long, that it, that would quickly look like a cult if you all lived with me. Uh, so that's not what we're shooting for. What we are shooting for uh, is, is a culture that recognizes that everything that I have belongs to King Jesus. And God has called us to be a generous people. And the question is, is are you generous? We're going to take this special offering on Christmas Eve. And we have the power as a church uh, to meet the needs of, of a lot of homeless in the city. And there is a tremendous amount of homeless. And I don't know if you guys noticed how stinking cold it is outside right now. It's cold. Last year in, my, in the town I grew up in, in Longview, three people died uh, from exposure to cold weather. Um, three homeless. And I don't even know what the numbers are in Portland. I just happened to hear a report on NPR the other day. And I think that we need to understand that our radical generosity means that we actually care about the people that are around us and that our concern for them because we have been so radically blessed by the love of Christ and that God's generosity toward us in Jesus is so intense that we can't rest unless we share that grace. That means that we share who we are and what we have, that his gospel may go forth. How powerful is the proclamation when our lives are marked by a willingness to meet people where they're at and to meet their needs where they're at. And on Christmas Eve, I'm telling you, if you have kids, and we're not having kids ministry that day, give your kids offering. Teach them now about what it means to be generous because our culture tells us that we must protect with diligence what is ours. We've got to fight for it. We need to keep it. And we all know, why is it more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to enter the eye of a needle? It's because that the more that you have, the more you have to protect what you have. I have a dear friend who is a very successful hedge fund uh, guy, and he's, I asked him, I said, I said, how do you maintain just a groundedness in the gospel? Because he's just a man who just lives out this radical generosity. He goes, he goes Josh... The key is giving it away. If you don't give it away, it becomes a noose around your neck. And I was like, oh, that's, that's fascinating. That's a, that's a powerful way to live as a, as a man of great wealth. And he's like, it's just, it's so dangerous. And you have to constantly force yourself to just give beyond what even is comfortable. 
And I think that 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 lesson, and listen, you can be poor and be stingy, and you can be wealthy and stingy. We need to understand that. We can be just as, I know what it's like to be a poor, self-absorbed artist, and some of you know what it's like to be a rich, self-absorbed businessman. Uh, And the bottom line is, is that if self is your center, your generosity will be affected by it. It'll be impacted. And I think that we need to be a people who give generously, uh, who reflect that single vision. I love this. They didn't, they didn't give reluctantly, but they were just so excited to live out the gospel. In every, it's almost like the early church lived their lives on the precipice of like, what will happen if I jump? They wanted to see how far they could go in the gospel. And I encouraged you guys a couple weeks ago, this is the key, friends, is that we have as much of Jesus as we choose to have. And what actually prevents us from experiencing his fullness is our reluctance to lay down every area of our life. The spirit-filled life comes when we truly surrender, when we withhold nothing from Jesus any longer, when we ask him, Lord, everything that I am, everything that I have, I want it to serve you and to serve your kingdom. And what we can't figure out is why are we so unhappy as we pursue the things of the world because they cannot satisfy. God has placed eternity in our hearts. Duplicity will not bring contentment. You cannot serve God and mammon, it says. No man can serve two masters, for you either love the one and hate the other, resent the other. And I think that what we need to be is a people who have proper ordering of our lives around King Jesus and then allowing him by his spirit to define how we utilize what he has given us to steward. On Christmas Eve, my prayer is that we bring in so much money for homelessness in this city uh, that, that we are overwhelmed by God's graciousness, that we have the opportunity. It's not a I have to, but it's an I get to. I get to be a part of what God is about. I, can, I get to be a part. This is true religion, that we care, it says, for orphans and widows. James says, what good is it if you say, go in peace, but you send someone out without a jacket into the cold? We have the opportunity to provide much for those who are, have the least. And I pray that we would understand that in the culture in which we live, we are a rich nation and we are a rich people. Even if it feels like we have barely anything, we have more than most of the world. And I pray that our generosity would, would reflect the truth of our witness to King Jesus. Amen.